them do one move at a time. The U.S. Chess Podcast that explores people and organizations who are advancing our educational mission to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. Our goal is to give you ideas and methods you can use in your own community to help you build chess in your area one move at a time. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Chess Podcasts, which include cover stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, in which Chess Life editor John Hartman goes more in-depth with each month's cover story, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month, and that is hosted by our Women's Program Director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant Director of National Events, Pete Karyanis, in which he examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Just Life Online at uschess.org, or by subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Now, let's welcome our guest to this month's podcast. Welcome to the November edition of One Move at a Time. Our guest today is Tim Just, a national tournament director and a FIDE national arbiter and editor of the U.S. Chess Rulebook since the fifth edition. We're on the seventh edition now. He is the co-author with Wayne Clark of My Opponent is Eating a Donut and of Just Law, Common Sense Answers to Frequently Asked Questions on Chess Rules, Regulations, and Policy from Players, Tournament Directors, and Organizers. He is the longtime chair of the Tournament Director Certification Committee, current TDCC member, and a longtime Rules Committee member. His byline has appeared on the TD Corner column in Chess Life, plus on the Rulebook Tactics column in the Illinois Chess Bulletin, and he has a monthly column on Chess Life Online titled Just the Rules. He facilitates both rules and tournament director workshops. He has performed countless students as a staff member or chief TD at national, state, and local scholastic and adult tournaments. He is a longtime U.S. Chess delegate and recipient of the U.S. Chess Outstanding Career Achievement Award, the U.S. Chess Tournament Director of the Year Award, and U.S. Chess Committee of the Year Award. Welcome to One Move at a Time, Tim Just. Thanks a lot, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's get go right to the beginning. What got you started in chess? Um, when I was in what now would be considered middle school, I was about seventh or eighth grade, uh, one of my friends, a neighbor, started playing chess. And I said, oh, that looks like fun. And he promptly beat me about the first hundred times we played. And I said, oh, that's not going to work for me. And so I started studying, and then we became fairly competitive with each other. And it, has it stayed a part of your life through, throughout your entire life? Was there ever a time where you just took a step back from chess? Yes, there was. There was a, a point when other things uh, took over my life, going to school, and getting my first job, and getting settled into a new apartment. And uh, I just forgotten about chess until I ran across uh, Ken Smith's little pamphlet, the late Ken Smith's pamphlet, um, whose name I can't remember right now, the name of the pamphlet. And it got me reinterested in playing again, uh, especially his, uh, the columnist on the Black Mardimer Gambit. I just said, this is fantastic. Tactics, tactics, tactics. <laughs> and so, so what was your career? What was your day job before you got back into chess? I was a teacher. I taught in uh, Elmhurst for three years, and then I made my way up here to Waukegan, Illinois, and I finished out my career there back in 2003. And what was it at that school, were you involved in any way as a chess coach or uh, faculty advisor to the chess team? For a while, I uh, had a chess club after school, and then I applied to be the chess coach at the high school. And they gave that job to somebody else. Sadly, it was someone who really was a babysitter and it was more of a games club. He really didn't know how to play. And after that, I said, well, I bet you the United States Chess Federation has stuff for me to do that would be just as satisfying. And it has been. Now, so the bulk of this conversation today is going to be about rules. That's what you're mainly known for. It's not going to be the only thing we talk about. But um, so let, let's just kind of get into the rules and, and the rule book. And, and, and we'll also talk some about uh, your, your specific books. Uh, I, I suspect that a lot of people 
listening to this podcast have never played tournament chess before and maybe thinking about getting back into it. And let's talk about this as, as over-the-board play. We're currently uh, you know, in, in the midst of COVID and over-the-board play is largely shut down, but we do hope that that will come back at some point. Yep. So for someone who wants to play tournament chess for the first time, what are some of the essential tournament-specific rules that they would need to know? Because I think a lot of people get a little surprised at the size of the rule book thinking, well, I, I know how the knight moves. Why do I need a, you know, a hundred page or 150 page book? When um, a lot of people come to chess, they've either played casually uh, with their friends or they've, they've played what we, you know, see them doing in the park or out on the beach, or they have been playing online and they want to try over the board chess. And in all those cases, the thing that really catches a lot of them by surprise is that they have to take chess notation. They actually have to write down their moves. So that's a skill they need to learn before they take up over-the-board chess. Now, there are electronic devices out there you can use, though it makes people think that funny things are going on, that you may be getting help through those devices. So far, nobody has received help through one of the devices that has been um, looked at by U.S. chess. Uh, so you need to really learn to take notation. Uh, touch move is another thing that surprises people at tournaments. They're used to often, in often cases, touching the piece with their friends, moving and going, oops, taking the move back and being allowed to move again. You can't do that in over-the-board chess. The people who come from the online experience, of course, uh, don't really have that problem. They might have a mouse slip. But when they move a piece, it's moved. There's no argument about you touched it, you didn't touch it, you move the piece. The computer takes care of that. By the way, the computer also takes care of notation if you're playing online. So that's, that's uh, one of the other big surprises when you move over into the over-the-board world. Uh, the silence when you play over-the-board at a tournament is uh, quite surprising to some players, especially if you're used to playing in the park or you're playing on the beach and you know you get to sort of psych out your opponent with some of your uh, little talks between your moves that doesn't happen in over the board chess or it's not supposed to and tournament directors are supposed to make sure that doesn't happen um there's no electronic gear in the room and so people don't misunderstand you can't have your cell phone you need to have it off and put away. If it's a FIDE-rated tournament, and we'll get into that later, I'm sure, the rules are slightly different. Uh, they're a little more strict. You just can't have that cell phone in there because you can have Fritz, which is a chess-playing program, on your cell phone, or you can have the list is quite long. And you really shouldn't be getting help. And people really don't want you taking that phone in the washroom with you when you take a washroom break or out in the hall or outside while you uh, go for a smoke and looking up some good move you can make when you come back to your board. That's not a good thing. A lot of people call that unfair play. That's the politically correct thing to say. Other people who don't want to be politically correct, they like to call it cheating. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll let the listener decide what that is for themselves. There's a lot to unpack in what you've already um, uh, listed here. I, I'm, I'm curious about a. F I want to ask a few follow up questions. Um, for someone who has never played a tournament before, I could see them putting their phone away, but it, it may be the most unnatural thing in the world for them to turn their phone off. Let, let's say they've put it away, it's in their bag, but it rings. What's going to happen to them? In the United States, what happens in a U.S. chess official tournament is they, they will lose 10 minutes of time. Or if there's very little time left, they'll lose half their time. If it happens again, you can be thrown out of the tournament. Now, strictly speaking, some tournaments can make up their own rules and that are harsher than that. If they even hear the cell phone, you're out of there. You can't play that game anymore, and you're out of the tournament. It just isn't something you do. Now, as a side note, a story. When I'm directing tournaments and I'm on the floor, 
and I hear a cell phone ring, and my hearing isn't all that good, so it was loud. And you say, oh, it came from this area over here, and you walk over there, and you can't figure out who it was because they know they've been busted. The phone rang, and it shouldn't have. And you ask the people around them, could you tell me whose phone rang and disturbed your game? They don't turn them in. So if you get caught and your friends turn you in who are sitting around you because you disturbed them, rudely disturbed them, you're probably going to at least lose 10 minutes of time. And you may get thrown out of the tournament, depending on that individual tournament rule. Well, now I have a follow-up to, to my follow-up. Um, it, you know, you said something about a tournament director could, could make up their own harsh rule about this. Why do we have a th- almost 300-page rule book if a TD can make up a rule? Because most TDs don't make up a rule. They, they just want to standardize and they want to enforce the rules that the delegates have come up with over all these years. Well, they've approved. The delegates actually didn't come up with all of them. Sometimes a rules committee comes up with stuff, and sometimes it comes out of a workshop. Uh, the rule book is fat, and it's not all rules. There are uh, historical things in there about U.S. chess. There's some promotional things that I think this fellow, Dan Lucas was his name, he wrote about. I think he has a chapter in there. Oh, that's you. <laughs> Pat yourself on the back, Dan. There probably two-thirds or so of the book is really rules and regulations, with the first chapter being mainly for players when they play in the tournaments. The second chapter is mostly for tournament directors saying, look, here are the ins and outs of making pairings, keeping track of stuff, uh, turning material into U.S. chess, and all the little hoops you have to jump through to see that the tournaments run smoothly. Players generally aren't concerned with that too often unless they like to play the game of who do I play. They might want to read a little section on that. Tournament directors and organizers often have rules that they think are better than the rules in the rule book, better than what the delegates have come up with. And so they advertise for their events and say at this tournament only, the following rules are going to apply. Uh, Cell phone rings once you're out is one of the examples we just discussed. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I can't think of another one offhand, but, uh, you know, everybody has something, uh, could be, there's no spectators. We, we don't allow spectators, spectators because people are afraid the spectators might be conveying moves to some of the players. Whatever is on the, uh, in the old days, by the way, when there used to be smoking tournaments, some tournament directors would pre-announce no smoking at the tournament. A lot of players had to get up and run outside and smoke in between moves. Going back to my follow-ups to uh, your original answer to this question, uh, and again, these are all um, questions with an eye towards a beginning tournament player. Uh, the touch-move rule, um, how does someone go about claiming that if they – think their opponent has violated the rule, and how does it, uh, how do, how does a TD solve a he said, she said situation? Well, that's actually a two-part question. The follow-up to uh, somebody breaking a rule and you want the rule enforced because you think it's been broken is you get a hold of a TD. You can raise your hand, which is usually what happens at scholastic events, uh, or you can grab a TD who's walking around on the tournament floor. If there's a team, you might have to go out in the hallway at smaller events because there's only one tournament director wearing several hats. And you say, my opponent touched the piece. I'd like you to help me enforce the rule where he has to move it. What I generally suggest to people before they go that route is to tell your opponent, oh, the rule says if you touch it, you got to move it. You touched it. Please move that piece. If that doesn't work, that's when the TD has to be involved. And when the TD has to look at a he said, she said, TD looks around and and nobody near that board can verify whether the piece was touched or not. And he doesn't know who to believe. The rule of thumb is to do the least amount of harm, which is, and this sounds awful, you say, sorry, I can't force him to move that piece. Why is that the least bad of the decisions? If you allow someone to run around and say, my opponent touched that piece and he's got to move it, and you always believe them, 
Think of the monkey shines that people could pull off in order to force their opponent to make a bad move. And lest people think that this is just something that might happen to beginners, there's a fairly famous story of uh, Gary Kasparov and Judith Polgar, yeah. where Kasparov was accused of making a touch move and he, uh, or, or, or touching a piece and then moving another, but he uh, denied that he had done so. Yeah, Grandmasters, uh, they have, they're, they're human beings. You get involved, and if I remember, it was a, a, a quicker chest time control. You just, and I, and I seriously don't think he cheated. I think he believed he didn't touch that piece. That often happens when you're in time control and you're moving fast and uh, you reach out and you know your hand's above the piece, but you don't think you touched it. And your opponent sees that and says, you touched it because they think you did. That's the time you're glad you got those cameras. I, if I remember, didn't, uh, didn't that particular game have a camera on it? I believe so. And even that was really inconclusive, uh, which shows how difficult some of these situations can become. Yeah. And there's a tricky little rule in the U.S. Chess Rulebook that I'd like you to talk about, too, involving castling and touch move uh, and whether you can move your, your rook first. Could you please uh, talk about that? The nicest way to put this is we agree with the fide rule, which is you touch your king first or else. If you touch the rook first, you've got to move your rook. There's a lot of wiggle room there. There, there was a, um, in one of my columns, as a matter of fact, the one that is going to be published this month online. I haven't checked today. I thought it was going to be published today. It got in the delegate's head that we should follow the FIDE rule exactly. There were just, especially at the club level, there were a lot of old timers, a lot of people who were there with the same group every week that were used to moving the rook first and putting the king next to it. To them, that was the way they learned a castle. That's the way they always have. And that's the way it will always be. And nobody was going to force them to do differently. Uh, this is one of those rules, by the way, the tournament director could post that they weren't going to enforce touching the king first and castling. But often tournament directors forget to do that. Well, this didn't fly too well. And the delegates the very next year came up with an alternate rule that did not have to be announced to the players. And the alternate rule <laughs> was that you could touch the rook first and put the king next to it after uh, the two squares over. So everybody backtrack. The safe thing to do if you're new to chess is touch the king first. Period. Just touch the king first and move it two squares. That way you know you're castling. And my last follow-up question from your uh, response to my original question has to do with taking notation. Uh, I think when someone goes out there and, and tries to learn notation, uh, they may be surprised at how many different systems are out there. Even the most common one, algebraic notation, has has variation, sub-variations within that. Is there any standard or preferred uh, uh, version of taking notation as far as the rules are concerned? Not really. We, we would uh, we encourage everybody to use algebraic because it is so easy to learn, especially if you have a board in front of you with A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and so on, and one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Uh, you can see where those letters and numbers intersect on the uh, on the board, and you can just put down what square the piece was on and the square it landed on. That's the easiest thing for a beginner to learn, and it doesn't really matter whether you name the piece. You can do that. Uh, you need to notate in such a way that when you make a claim and your uh, score sheet's needed, and there are, there are claims that you need the score sheet for, that the tournament director, if your opponent doesn't agree that the game is whatever the result would be because you're, you've got uh, broken a rule, you need that score sheet for the tournament director. Tournament director's got to be able to read it. He's got to be able to know what system you're using. Uh, that proves a little iffy when we get brand new players who are grandmasters from Europe because uh, their systems sometimes are, are, are hard to figure out. But eventually most tournament directors can do it. And uh, if you don't have that score sheet, you can't make any claims as we spoke earlier about flags falling. Well, you have some proof for a lot of the other rules. And you say, tournament director, here's the score sheet that my opponent says, this didn't happen. Please check my score sheet. 
one of the biggest things that's happened to the rules in the in, during this COVID period is the adaptation of a brand new Chapter 10 about um, playing online. Um, in the previous version of the seventh edition of the rulebook, Internet Chess was just a, a few pages of guidelines, and it's now become a, a, a completely uh, adopted new section and um, uh and, and it's you know now available out there in various forms. We'll talk about that too later. But talk, let people know uh, what has changed with the rules for online chess in this new Chapter 10. Well, a lot of things we just talked about. The notation, the touch move, uh, being silent. You're sitting at home. <laughs> you really don't need to be perfectly silent. Um, you obviously have some electronic gear. And uh, often... Organizers will require you to have two cameras, the one directly in front of you on your screen, and then a camera aimed in another direction to make sure you're not using some separate electronic device to help you out. Like, oh, your friends on the cell phone that we mentioned earlier, or another computer, or whatever somebody comes up with. Um, most of all that stuff, even illegal moves, even even the running of your clock and claiming someone ran out of time, it's all taken care of by the platform's computer, like chess.com. That takes care of all this stuff. The tournament directors only needed, really, to take care of some of the minor complaints, uh, like my mouse slipped. Do I still have to make this move? My mouse slipped. I couldn't make this move. Uh, my time ran out because I got kicked offline, what should I do? The tournament director then often has to come up with a decision, whether let uh, more time be added to the game or whatever they come up with. It hasn't really outlined in Chapter 10 exactly what the tournament director's duties are, and I think that's being worked out this year. Because it is new, the delegates are going to get a whole slew of revisions to these rules to say, hey, when this happens, we want the tournament director to do that. Right now, the tournament directors, it's like the Wild West. They're sort of uh, flying by the seat of their pants out there, trying to be as fair as they can be. And the, um, the, the old bugaboo about fair play and cheating has really come back with over-the-board chess. These, these rules we just mentioned, no big deal. Computer takes care of it. Well, as it turns out, at least the three major platforms, I think it's live chess, Chess.com and uh, ICC all have computer programs that analyze the games of the players and then decide if the player played way out of their league, if they were rated as as a their second or third tournament and they're pretty low rated because they're just learning the game, and then the very next tournament they play better than the current world champ, they say something's amiss here. We need to look into it. And they have software that looks into it analyzes what they think might indicate unfair play, and they hand that over to the tournament director sometimes after the event, weeks later, or during the event. Uh, and then, then sometimes the platform just kicks you off, so you can't, you can't finish the tournament. Or the tournament director might decide that uh, it's time for you to take a vacation. And after that, there are other steps that the tournament director can work on, but that's not outlined in Chapter 10. It's only briefly mentioned, and that's uh, turn everything over to the Ethics Committee, who then decides if the person really did cheat and what should be done about it. Should they continue to have their membership uh, be active in U.S. chess, or are we going to give them a vacation, or does somebody just not know what's going on and will have to decide what to do? This may have whetted people's appetite for, you know, they may have an old edition of the of the rule book and think, well, now I, I, I really need this new edition, so I have chapter 10. Uh, we've made it available in three major formats. Could you talk about each one and how people can go about getting it? Yeah, a lot, there's people out there that still enjoy that paper copy. And you can go and get the paper copy uh, from the U.S. Chess Bookstore. They're selling it. If you want a copy for your Kindle, um, and yes, I have a copy of the original 7th edition. I haven't upgraded yet. If you want a copy for your Kindle, you just go over to uh, Amazon. Amazon will be glad to sell your copy and load it right onto your Kindle. 
Uh, the nice thing is it's searchable. You can type in a term and it's searchable and the table of contents, if you see the rule that you want to check out because it's important to you in your game or a particular tournament you're playing in, uh, you just point, tap, and away you go. That that little rule just appears right in front of you. And uh, something that I hadn't realized that happened with the sixth edition, but that uh, you kindly took care of, Dad, was that the index in the back was also just point, tap, and whatever the item is in the index, it gets jumped right to it. Whatever the rule is, whatever the idea is. So if in the index you want to learn more about uh, writing rules, writing rules, <laughs> writing uh, notation. You just point, tap, and it jumps right to that rule. And the, the third format is the free versions we have available. That's right. And you can almost do all of this on the free version, depending on how you download it. It is uh, a, in a version that you can just download, and it's searching. Everything I just said about the ebook. Is something you can do in the downloadable version. Now, the whole rule book is not downloadable online. Chapters 1 and 2, now chapter 10, and chapter 11. Huh? We haven't spoken about that yet, but chapter 11 is Blitz Chess, and there's a it's a, I think it's I think it's a religion. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, so for that free version, uh, you go to uschess.org. You click on the play tab at the top of our page, and you'll see a link to the official rules. And you'll you'll find the free downloadable version there. The print edition, as Tim said, is available at USCF Sales. That's uscfsales.com. And then the Kindle version is amazon.com. And just search for the the title, and it'll pop up. So, Tim, we, you know, we've talked a lot of nitty-gritty uh, about the rules. I've got a couple of what I hope were fun questions about rules. Um, have there been any rule changes over the years that have been truly surprising to you? Well, the first one that was surprising is the one I already mentioned. You have to touch the king first. I'm a delegate, and I sat there, and I voted against that only because I knew it was going to have the problems it had. A lot of the blitz rules I wasn't sure about, and people have refined those over the years. And uh, the surprises come when you show up and you see that that tournament director has his own set of blitz rules and you got to play by them. It's I'm trying to think offhand if there's any particular rule that, that truly surprised me. No, there's nothing that truly outright surprised me. Everything was, was worked on for the year before it happened, before the delegates looked at it, before the delegates passed it. What does surprise me is that uh, for a long time, a rule would pass, and the very next year, someone would say, no, no, this ain't working, and they tweak it. Then they go, no, no, this ain't working, and they tweak it. Well, that the delegates have seen that you can't just tweak it every year and drive the players nuts. You can't do that. There were some rules that uh, I personally objected to, but I enforced them. I was a tournament director. The no losing chances rule is one that particularly drove me nuts. It was, and still is, long. It's complicated. It puts a lot of pressure on the TD because the TD has to make decisions about are there losing chances here or are there no losing chances. And it's got a long list of things the TD has at their disposal. Finally, the delegates got rid of the rule and they made it an alternate. Yes, that's right. How's that for surprising? There's an alternate rule to a rule that doesn't exist. I don't explain these things. I'm just telling you what the delegates came up with. It looks a bit strange, but it's there. Uh, that particular rule I always found surprising because it was so complicated. In those days when I did a lot more mentoring of tournament directors and workshops, I had a rule of thumb I would tell the TDs. One of the things they allowed the TD to do, and I told the players whenever I would talk to a player is that uh, what you can do to make it equitable is you just say, I as a TD don't know what to make the call here. I'm going to set up a clock properly and I'm going to give you the proper amount of time. You two can play until the clock flag falls. And if it's truly a no losing chances situation, it's quickly going to be a draw. It's really hard on, on a game that gives you extra time 
that runs off, usually five seconds. That would be the standard. Before you start moving, if it's truly a draw, you can just bang it out. It's a book draw. And the time on your clock never changes, and both players, they're not so hard-headed. They look at each other and say, I think it's a draw. Let's agree. It keeps the tournament director out of the game, and it uh, puts it back in the hands of the player where it belongs. Now, that it was surprising to me that that rule hung around for so very, very, very long. So to be clear, you're saying it's not there anymore? That rule actually doesn't exist. It can be used as an alternative, but the, the standard practice is that you can't make that claim anymore. And seldom is it, does it need to be claim, made because we're starting to use increment more and more in chess, and the rule doesn't apply if you're using increment. You have all the time you need to draw your game. It's, it's uh, mainly a thing that a lot of club tournament directors and club players like. There are some bigger tournaments that still use it, but not many. Another thing I'm curious about is because uh, it, unless players bring a TDN, uh, everything is supposed to be resolved directly over the board. And a lot of us have experienced being at a scholastic tournament and you see two kids banging out moves when there's only kings left on the board and someone's trying to win on time that way. Is there any uh, situation where it's inappropriate for a TD to step in when they see something being done incorrectly? That's a good question. Officially, there is a hands-off policy in USCF. FIDE, however, has a hands-on policy. So if you're playing in a tournament that's FIDE-rated, they're liable to step in and say, oh, that's an illegal move. Here's the penalty. Uh, you touched it. You got to move it. In scholastic tournaments, it gets a little iffy. Typically, in the in grades kindergarten, one, two, and sometimes three, the fairest thing that can happen is the TD has to step in and say, uh, guys, you're both playing without a king. <laughs> We're going to have to do something here. Um, trying, to, trying to blitz off a game to run your opponent out of time, the TD can often step in in those lower grades, and coaches don't like it when it happens, but they can say, slow down and allow your opponent to take notation and make a move, please. There is a rule about blitzing your opponent, uh, trying to gain an advantage. And you can complain to the tournament director that that's happening. But kids don't generally do that. They, they depend on adults to make things fair. In the higher grades, especially up through high school, the TDs just stay out of it, period, unless they're asked to step in, unless they see something that's really, really, really wrong. Like the clocks are set wrong and off by an hour. That's going to impact the whole tournament especially if the hour is extra long. Mm -hmm. So I still have a bunch of questions about rules. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a surprisingly, uh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the word, but it's a topic that generates a lot of discussion and a, a lot of fun discussion. But let's take a break and talk about governance because you've been uh, a, a longtime delegate, as we mentioned in the introduction from, from Illinois. For people who don't even realize there is such a thing as U.S. chess governance, um, and we're always looking for, for new blood, talk about what it is to be a delegate. And I've got a couple of other questions about that, too, after we discuss that. I became a delegate, I think, a million years ago. I'm not sure. Uh, and Helen Warren and Tim Remen introduced me to the other delegates, and I slowly learned how the governance procedures work. And you're right. Players don't know that governance procedure works. Every state has at least one delegate. Sometimes they have much more in larger states like Illinois and California, where there's a lot more players. You have more delegates. They get to show up and there's workshops going on in all sorts of areas of interest that the delegates and non-delegates can attend. The meetings then start over the weekend, the last weekend of the U.S. Open. And uh, it's exactly what you would expect of a governance body. There's, uh, there's a roll call and there's procedures for addressing the various issues and especially for the rules. Ahead of time, people can put in what they think should be a new rule or a tweak to an old rule. Somebody will second it. There'll be a discussion about it. There's rules, Robert's rules of order, typically, about what goes on discussing those rules. You, the person who puts the rule up for discussion gets a bit of leeway in talking about, here's why we need to make this change. Here's why we need this rule. 
And then people can discuss the pros and cons, and each person has about three minutes to talk of whatever they need to say. That can get rather lively, and sometimes it can get rather dull and boring. I have been known to be Mr. Call the Question. What? <laughs> I, I look around, and I was taught this by someone else. If everybody's talking for a motion and nobody's talking against it, it's time for me to get to a microphone and say, hey, are we done discussing this? Let's vote for it. We only have this weekend to look at everything. Everybody should have their say. However, people are starting to repeat themselves and are all saying how much they approve of this motion. So I call the question and that says, delegates, can we just move on with this and end discussion? And I've done that for so many years, it's my reputation of cutting off, uh, cutting off people at the microphone. Now, somebody really, really, really wants something to happen at a rules level. They have several paths they can take. They do have a delegate for their state. They can hunt that person down, usually through their state association, uh, or there's a list of the delegates online. Uh, there's a uh, pull-down tab that says governance, and hidden in there somewhere is that information. If that doesn't suit you, you can, in the form of a motion, hand that motion in at the annual delegates meeting. Okay, I'm going to be honest. You don't have to hand it in if you're a player. You just look at anybody that's going to be at the tournament and have them hand it in. Say, here, this is the annual meeting. We want to have the following item considered. If the people at the annual meeting, and the annual meeting is delegates, it's uh, any player who's not involved in any governance, it's anybody who wants to attend that's a U.S. chess member, and they approve this motion that you have, it jumps right to the top of list that the delegates have to consider when they get to that point in their agenda on Saturday or Sunday, depending on how other things at the meeting go. So you do have... Uh, you do some hoots to jump through to change things. It's not a lot of fun, but it's uh, it's probably similar to the way a lot of city governance works. You find your alderman, you see if you can get them to change something. Or uh, they give you time at most of these meetings, uh, around here anyway, to talk for three to five minutes if you're just, you live in the city and you want to say A, B, and C. Let's go down this path. City council, well, that's what you're saying here. You're saying, let's go down this path, board. Let's go down this path, delegates. So those are some rule changes you might want to try to implement. No, it's not easy. Without you being there talking for or against it, it's, it's liable to fail and get put back in a committee for study. But you're on the road to having something happen. I've noticed over the last few years that other people seem to be much more willing to call the question now. Yeah, I've taught them well. <laughs> they, they've come to the same conclusion that I did that a lot of what was going on at that moment wasn't necessary things were being repeated the lines were short or they they were just arguing about nothing so people will get up uh, Fun Fong who just got elected to the board was getting really good at, at his, having his sixth sense say that's enough we're not, we're not learning anything here we're not persuading anybody to change their mind we're just picking up sides. We need to vote on this. And it's, that's nice. I sit there and I don't have to run up to the microphone all the time or find my place in line. The little tricks to uh, pulling off calling the question. If uh, you find the shortest line, get in it. That way you get to the microphone and say, hey, enough is enough. Can we go ahead and vote on this? And sometimes the delegates surprise me. They say, no, we want to discuss this some more. Okay, good. Maybe somebody will change their mind. Well, in past years, we've had a dean of chess, and now we have a dean of scholastic chess and Dwayne Barber. I, I, I think I'm going to propose a d dean of calling the question. And Oh, thank you. Thank you very <laughs> much. I guess I should give my mentor a shout out named Helen Henshaw. Uh, when I first came aboard, when there were people I was being introduced to, Helen Henshaw was one of the people. And uh, her and her husband were quite a team. They each get at a microphone. So one of them got to call the question. <laughs> Uh, well, I don't know. It's nice that you mentioned we have other people that call the question now because I think they're starting to do that. They see me at one microphone and they, they run to the other one. 
And some of them, I think, really enjoy getting to the mic right ahead of me and calling the questioner, like, oh, I beat you to it, Tim. I beat you to it. <laughs> okay, so let's, let's get back to the rules. And how did you first get selected as rule book editor? Therein lies a good story I've told often. Uh, the board, and we know what I mean by the board. It wasn't the delegates. The board knew it was time for a new rule book. The old rule book had gone on, oh, my God, I think it was 10 years, maybe more. And uh, they knew it was time because there were like four to five pages, single space, small print, rules changes, and nobody knew what they were. So they decided, the board, that we were going to have a new rule book, and we needed an editor. I had no idea they were doing this. That's what's the fun part of the story. They did not want the old editor to be the editor again. It was sheer politics. They just didn't want that person being the editor. And so the board went back and forth, politics. You know, uh, well, if you vote for this for, you know, us revising the rule book now, they said, what? But we can't do that. You don't have an editor. Unbeknownst to me, Helen Warren and Tim Redman said, but we do have one, Tim Just. I had no idea. At that time, I was writing my column for the Illinois Chess Bulletin called Rulebook Tactics. I get a call after the meeting congratulating me on my selection as a rulebook editor. My jaw dropped. I, I was, I was, I didn't know what to say or do. And as it turns out, it's been probably one of the most fun things I've done in chess. I really have enjoyed doing it. So, what is the fun aspect? It, it's you know, it's it's essentially a textbook of of sorts. It's it yeah. can be hard to write. Uh, yeah. Certainly, you add your TD tips. I'm sure that's fun. So, what what is the fun part for you? Well, first of all, one of the fun things was TD tips. There were no TD tips in the version four. I like to walk. I think you're a runner. I'm a, I'm a walker. I was walking one day as my daily exercise, thinking about the rule book. I thought, boy, so many people just don't understand what this all this wording means in this rule. Someone should give them a tip. Hey, I got an idea. And my co-editor at the time was Dan Berg, and he said, that's an excellent idea. So it's fun coming up with the TV tips. And the second fun thing was going through and revising some of the language in the rule book, getting rid of rules that just weren't necessary anymore. The, I, was giving the, I was eventually given the permission by the delegates to do all that. So I wasn't just a one-man show, one-man you know, dictator, so to speak. And the second thing that I really enjoyed was, this is going to sound strange, learning to use Word. I know that's odd. Uh, it was it was a learning challenge. It it was self-taught. I would go on the internet and see what other people did to accomplish the task that I wanted to do. And at the time, uh, I had been selected on my job. I was a math teacher in a middle school. I had been selected to run the computer lab, which was an Apple lab. But as some people know who have Apples, Word is on that particular platform. And I was also selected to help teach the kids how to use Word and Apple Works. So it was just like a great, wonderful challenge. And uh, wow, I just it's been a great ride. Now, something that we've that's come up a few times already in this discussion is differences between FIDE and US chess rules. Do you have we already covered all of those key ones or are there some more that you want to Well, let's let's see. The arbiters are inclined, as I mentioned earlier, to be able to step in more often than you think. They can call the flag. Yeah, that's a big shock to U.S. chess people. The electronic device rule that that is in FIDE is you got it in the room, you just lost. They also are, are fairly strict about showing up on time. It, it is almost draconian. The clocks start now. Start your clocks. Your toe is in the door going to your board. You just lost. They realize that FIDE, that isn't what we do in this country, and they, are, they allow wiggle room for the organizer to get away with what U.S. Chess gets away with, though FIDE is pretty unhappy about it. They don't like people being late. U.S. Chess hasn't come around to that. Someday they might. They might not. I don't know. One of the rules that's 
that that has wiggle room in, in U.S. chess, but not FIDE is, you must. There's no wiggle room. You must make the move on the board and then record it. No variation. We have a variation that says, nah, you ain't got to do that. <laughs> it's another unannounced variation because it's the old way of doing things. And that's how clubs have done it. That's how people learn, particularly from the Kotov book. I think it, oh, I forgot the title of the book. Uh, from the Kotov book. And coaches taught their students to play like that. So we have generations of players here that that uh, uh, write the move and then make the move. Um, a whole large group of players here at U.S. Chess believe that's cheating. That's taking notes. Whether it is or not doesn't matter. The, the debate is, what do we do about all these players that are forfeiting games because they're 65 years old and that's the way they've always done it? Uh, U.S. Chess took care of it. If you're playing in a FIDE contest, you can expect that perhaps you have a big problem because you cannot write the move first. You just can't do it. They don't allow you to call your own flag in FIDE. That, that's sort of a keep the TD out of it rule here in U.S. Chess. You have to be the one calling your flag, not your buddy standing around the board, not a spectator. You call your own flag, period. End of discussion. Well, that's not true in FIDE. In FIDE, the arbiter walks up and goes, flag, you lose. Whether it's fair or unfair, that's a difference. The arbiter in FIDE can use both score sheets to help solve any rules dispute. You can't exactly do that in U.S. chess. You're not. It, it sort of follows a, a rule that we see in the courts on TV all the time. You cannot incriminate yourself. Well, your own score sheet might incriminate you, and TVs typically can't use your score sheet to say, yeah, on your score sheet, player A, it says this. Therefore, you lose. You broke the rule. No, 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 no. That, that doesn't fly in FIDE at all. If there's an illegal move in FIDE, you get a two-minute penalty. If you make another illegal move, you're out of there. Goodbye. Take a hike. In U.S. Chester, they can penalize you two minutes over and over and over until the TD gets tired of it and realizes it's not doing any good. Then there are other steps they can take. They can add more time. They can take away more time. They can uh, forfeit you multi-steps. You have to use uh, both hands to make a move, and it's illegal in FIDE. We talked about the castling. You've got to touch your king first. And here's one that, that um, doesn't happen too much anymore. Chess sets in the United States come with two queens of each color. But in the old days, if you didn't have a queen and your pawn promoted, you could put an upside-down rook on the board. That is not allowed in FIDE. You cannot put an upside-down rook on the board to take the place of a queen. You're going to have to get another queen to put on that board. Those are the major things. We're not exactly good at enforcing that in this country when you're at, I don't know, let's see, the Tim Just Winter Open. Oh, imagine me promoting my own tournament, which probably will be played online this year. Somebody else will run it for me. At that tournament, it really is just a Swiss. No titles are handed out, and that's the key. FIDE doesn't seem to mind us bending the rules as long as there's no title involved. So if it's not a quad or it's not a match, we're okay. But if it's a quarter of a match that says, this is going to determine that my buddy Frank here is going to get to be an IA, these rules are going to be followed, period. That FIDE really is pretty strict about that. And we also do pairings differently than FIDE. They don't seem to mind that much, again, unless there's a title on the line. One, one U.S. chess tournament director didn't follow those rules and uh phoebe just said bye-bye you're not a phoebe anything anymore we'll see you around he didn't hand the hand the results in and the order of phoebe requires results to be handed in because phoebe has rules about if you achieve an im norm at any time during the tournament now i'm not sure what it is right now but in those days that's that was the rule he, uh, you, you became an IM, even if you didn't score well enough uh, throughout the whole eight-game tournament. Actually, the eight-game round-robin, typically. And this tournament director handed him out of order, and it would have made someone an IM. 
And actually, I think it would have made someone a GM now that I think about it. And FIDE said, no, that person doesn't get to be a GM and you're not directing any more FIDE tournaments. Take a hike. We're not that picky at U.S. Chess. So as, as we're coming to a close here, um, in addition to the uh, the rule book that you're editor of, you're author or co-author of, of two books of your own. One is My Opponent is Eating a Donut. I, I suspect there is a story behind that title. There certainly is. <laughs> I could, I'll tell you the story uh, that the title refers to. The, the making of that book, the, the authoring of that book. Wayne Clark, my co-author, lives close to me. And in the pre-pandemic days, we would meet at least once a week for coffee. And there was another fellow who knew nothing about chess, but noticed that we talked about it a lot. And he became a good friend of ours. And we would tell him these stories about what happened at a chess tournament. He often would shake his head and go, people are crazy. <laughs> you know, because he, he would hear how some rule got broke or somebody complained about something that, <laughs> that really didn't deserve to be complained about. And one day I looked at Wayne and I said, Wayne, I'm going to write down something to remind us of the story we just told Jack. And then we're going to write about it and we're going to put it in a book. He laughed at me. Wayne thought it was silly. Turned out Wayne didn't think it was so silly. I, I got a nice long list after about a year and we sat down, we cranked it out. We got an editor and the editor found the story in the book that uh, was the title. My opponent is eating a donut came from the National Open. I was working the back room, and the floor people really have a tough at the National Open, many, many, many hours without a break. In the back room, after you do some work, you have a break. You can go have lunch and uh, maybe play the roulette wheel, wink, wink. I, I don't know. Go play blackjack, play the one-armed bandits. But the people on the floor are stuck there. So I went in and gave someone some relief, as, as we all tend to do. person went out got their lunch. And the very first thing that happened to me in the first few minutes is some, some old guy with a middle European accent comes up. He goes, I got complaint. Well, you do? What's, what's the problem, sir? My opponent, he is eating that donut at board. What? He's eating a donut at the board. What? Is, is he eating a meal or don't? He is eating that board. You cannot eat that board. Kim's rules. You know, well, let's go check this out. Because let's face it, the guy could be having steak and eggs for all I knew. And I get there and I'm looking. I don't see any food. I mean, I'm, I'm picturing a guy eating a powdered sugar donut and the powdered sugar is getting all over the board. Go ahead, let your imagination fill in that picture. And I said, well, well, sir, where's the donut? And his opponent had a donut on his lap underneath the table and would put his head down and, and take a bite of the donut just about a table or a little below table level. So it turned out the little old guy didn't like anybody eating anything at the board. He just thought it was improper. It just was rude. It was bad manners. He just couldn't stand it. It's, I'm sorry, sir. I have to deny you a complaint. He's not annoying you because that's the rule it comes under. You cannot annoy your opponent. Well, of course, he appealed my decision all the way up to the chief TD who said, I, sorry, sir. What none of us had the heart to tell this little old man was Freddie Grunberg, the organizer, for the very next round. Had ordered donuts for everybody. <laughs> so this guy, oh, this guy was hot. We sent him to Freddie. He said, go, go, go talk to Fred. <laughs> <laughs> and that became the title of the book. Uh, the editor actually came up with that. We didn't quite have a title. He goes, this is it. This is this is the one that, that you and Wayne should use for your title. And we did. And we had a lot of fun things and a lot of funny stories. And I, and, uh, I hope it inspired. There's a book out there now that the Scholastic Communities putting out about fun stories in chess. And I hope it inspired them because they're uh, selling that book and they're uh, donating all their profits. Yes, I've lost money on my book. <laughs> they're donating all their profits and they've made a profit to Scholastic Chess. So if you, uh, and maybe you can help me, Dan. I can't remember the name of their book right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm drawing a blank on that one as well. Um, but your your other book is Just Law, yeah. Common Sense Answers to Frequently Asked Questions on Chess Rules, Regulations, and Policy from Players, Tournament Directors, and Organizers. I'm going to go ahead and call that the, the, the subtitle from hell, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That almost sounds like it's a collection of TD tips. Is that a fair description? Yeah, except it was really meant as player tips. That was the whole goal. Uh, the story behind the whole book is uh, Bill Hall says, Tim, I want you to write a rule book that 
addresses what you and I, Dan, addressed at the beginning of this, uh, rules for players that they should know. So, and I want it to be set up so that people who are club TDs can read it and they get credit for having read that towards becoming a club TD. Says, well, okay, I'll give that a shot. Well, Bill Hall eventually was no longer in charge and somebody else came on board. And for several years, I tried to get the, the new executive director to give me the rights to this book because I had signed the rights from the book over to U.S. Chess to be the editor of the sixth edition. I really wanted that job. And, you know, I just never got the rights to it. So on her last, her last delegates meeting, we sat down and says, one last chance. I want to pitch at you. Can you give me the rights to this book? I wrote it. It never got published. Uh, U.S. Chess seemed to be doing nothing with it. It's good for the players. It's good for the TDs. It's a good collection of tips. Good observation, Dan. So I said, you know, I want it, and I want to make a blog out of it. I want to, every month, have a new blog post, maybe every week. I can easily take the stuff right out of this book. and and, and she says, no, okay. And that became the column because she gave me the rights. Uh, and that became my column. And it also became the basis of the book. I said, well, let me write a book so players can just go out and buy this. Because I didn't know if Just Rules really was going to fly. And it was part of something I had also been writing for the late Savan Meridian, who had inspired me to, to write that stuff. And there you go. That book I made money in. I think I'm about thirty dollars to the good. And are they? They are both available at USCF Sales. Is that correct? That's correct. You can get them both at USCF Sales. Uh, they've been my best and biggest customer so far. So, Tim, as we come to the end here, we've had a pretty wide-ranging discussion. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you want to share with our listeners? Not offhand. I, I'm, I'm wishing the best for everybody out there uh, who loves over-the-board chess, and we can come back to it in some way, shape, or form. Um, I do have a prediction that now that we've introduced online chess to a certain segment of the society that used to play over the board, they may never come back. I think they've discovered that uh, sitting there in your casual clothes, not having to drive somewhere, pay for meals, uh, pay for parking, um, play in a certain schedule away from your house doesn't meet their needs anymore. And I hope we can, can entice them to come back over the board chess. But we'll see, because who knows where the pandemic's going to lead. Right. The other the other benefit of online chess is there are no sticky donut fingers on the pieces. Mm, that's right. <laughs> that's absolutely right. So that's, that's been about my only thought and observation. And uh, I don't play online chess. The time controls are way too fast for me. Uh, I'm a postal chess player by, at heart. And we all know that... that, that our chess computers have sort of ruined over the board. Um, well, they over the board postal chess have ruined it. And I got out of playing uh, postal chess when I started working on the rule book, oddly enough. So all the time controls online are too fast for me. So I'm only speculating here what's going to happen. And since I'm a delegate, I'll get to see a lot of that. I'm on the rules committee, and I'll get to see what people are going to propose to tighten up those rules that the committee worked so hard to come up with for Chapter 10, uh, which is our shorthand way of saying the online rules. I think one of the things that has to happen with online rules is we have to be able to get our software to talk to their software. And when I say our software, TV software, the software that we have been using to run tournaments, that's that's something that has to happen. And we have to get a, a handle on what to do when the platform we're using says, that player might have an unfair advantage. Uh, we, we just don't know as a group what we can do about that. We have to come up with, as a U.S. chess group, what we can do about that. Well, Tim, thank you so much for joining us on this November edition of One Move at a Time, and thank you for your good work with the rulebook and explaining this all to our listeners. I appreciate it. And for people who don't know, my actual publisher is Dan here for U.S. chess. Uh, it was an interesting experience. In the past, I would hand the rulebook in, so publisher, just do everything. I'm a little more involved now, Dan. And, uh, Dan got me a little more involved. And I've learned even more about Word than I used to. So thank you, Dan. And I appreciate all the work you're doing. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to do it. Thank you, Tim. Bye. Thank you for joining us on this edition of One Move at a Time, which always drops on the second Tuesday of each month. Our theme music was composed by National Master Alex King of Memphis, Tennessee. 
Our podcasts are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit www.sevenseasonedfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Our sister podcasts at U.S. Chess are cover stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, Ladies' Night, hosted by Women's Program Director Jennifer Shahadi on the third Tuesday of each month, and on the fourth Tuesday, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant National Events Director, Pete Karianis. I hope that you've learned something of value that you can now use to help build chess in your own community. We'll be back next month with another Chess World personality who is helping us advance our mission statement to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess.